Hello and welcome to another episode of EG's Office Politics with me, Piers Wayner, and my good colleague, Mark Prisk. Hello, Mark. How are you, sir? Are you well? I am. I am. Yes. What are we talking about this week? We're talking about the King's Speech, aren't we? King's Speech, yes. Not the film, but the actual event. <laughs> and I have a top topical, uh, historical, possibly hysterical question for you. Who was the last man to deliver this speech? Well, now, hang on. Is that a trick question? Because it was Charles. Charles did it for his mum. But I was, what was I was that? actually referring to was, of course, people were thinking, oh, well, obviously it was when it was the last time there was a king. Yes. And so the, the but actually the truth is the last male to do it was somebody called Gavin. Because <laughs> I know this is glorious stuff. November 1951. This is comedy gold, as they would say. Um, November 1951, poor old George VI was not well, had cancer, and Princess Elizabeth was in Canada. So they had to dig out the next appropriate constitutional person who turned out to be the Lord Chancellor, who was none other than Gavin Simmons. So the last man to do this before the current monarch was, in fact, somebody called Gavin. There you go. That's your Trivial Pursuit start of the 10 for the day. That is brilliant. I don't think we can top that. Um, that's all we've got time for. Let's call it a day. You've had the, um, you've had the fun of, of being there in person, haven't you? Of, of... Yeah, no, we love the, the drama of the, the, the door being slammed and uh, the knock, knock, knock and, and all of that. It's, it's great history and it doesn't interfere with the running of things generally. Um, and then there's the glorious prospect that the prime minister and the leader of the opposition, you know, have to be to have polite words as they as they go along, trying to look like they like each other. So there's always that frosty thing. And then you crowd into the back of the House of Lords. And at my height, I remember one year, all I could see was Her Majesty's crown. I couldn't see her. And I could hear this distant voice. So I could see this crown sort of gently going up and down slightly. And that was all I could actually see. And if memory serves, you go from the Commons and into the other place, the other chamber, <laughs> um, and you go past an awful lot of not brilliant paintings on the walls of the English Revolution, don't you? Of... Yes, absolutely. Yes, no, the whole, so the, the whole of the revolution is there. And of course, what you've got to remember is that if you start in the House of Lords, start at the throne uh, room at the far end, uh, the western end of the Houses of Parliament, then you've got the, the Crown, then you've got the House of Lords, and then you've got the Commoners. And that actually was the historical pattern of how power gradually transferred. Mm. Going to what was actually in the King's Speech, because oh. it was a long one this year, wasn't it? It was. I, I read somewhere that it was... It was, it was, long speech. It was fewer bills, but of course the parliamentary yeah. term is shorter anyway, because he's only got between now and, um, and the latest reality November of next year. Um, so, because very often Queen King's or Queen's speeches have been 18 months or so. It's, it's what, 14 principal bills, another seven yeah. smaller ones. And a couple this, this was the longest bills. in terms of words. Words, Since yes. 2005, but the shortest in terms of bills since yes. somewhere before then. Whatever. So, yes. OK, well, yes, I, you know, I mean, some people obviously need to get out and get a real job to, so <laughs> rather than getting these sorts of things. But, yeah, I mean, I, and I thought it, it was quite consumerist. I mean, it's inevitably it's the last one before the end of the parliament, uh, before we have an election. So therefore, there's bound to be some bits and bobs in there which are either designed to see whether the Labour Party will vote against them. Um, or whether they're actually things that, um, 
deal with individual frustrations that people have, but aren't necessarily big mammoth, you know, 700 page bills of, of great constitutional change. So kind of plus a change, I guess, really. I mean, I've always taken the view that this month, the bigger political event is going to be the autumn statement. Yes. Um, but you know, there's, there's some interesting things in here, which I think our listeners you know, will want to know about. So we've got the um, the renters reform bill, which yeah. comes back, doesn't it? That was that was in yeah. there. Let's deal with that quickly. OK, so um, as people may know, when it was introduced briefly a month or so ago in the tail end of the last parliament, one of the critical issues here was whether or not sub- section 21, the eviction without notice, mm. would be removed completely and, and straight away. And what Gove has done, partly in response to his backbenchers, is to say we will we will legislate for it, but we will only implement it when the courts are actually ready to deal with it. Because I think, to be fair, the deal here was always, we'll end the issue of section 21 uh, no-fault evictions, but on the other hand, we'll try and make sure that the courts work better so that those situations where the landlord is dealing with a really troublesome tenant they have a better chance of getting uh, the matter resolved promptly uh, and putting it before the relevant land tribunal. So I think I think I think it's a, an understandable deal. But in truth, all it means, if we're going to be honest here, is that um, if there's a new uh, Labour government in a year's time, then they will be looking to have that implemented ASAP, regardless of the courts. And Matthew mm. Pennycook and Labour have made that clear. So I think from a practical point of view, if people are listening to this, thinking about, you know, what what's the likely timetable, I wouldn't, if I were anybody, if I was a landlord, be anticipating this holdback on the banning of um, Section 21 eviction notices, uh, to last any more than 12 months maximum. Mm. Um, and then there were one or two other things which I think people have been asking for. So renters often ask about pets. And whilst obviously, uh, you know, people have to be responsible about them, what it, this bill will do is to remove any blanket ban um, uh, that someone has as a principle in their tenancy. They can, they they have to demonstrate good reason why they can't allow a pet, which is fair enough, but it puts the onus, uh, you know, on the landlord to prove why not, rather than the tenant as to why. And then we've got the big one, haven't we? The big new bill, which is the leasehold and freehold bill. Yes. Which I, I mean, I say new. It is and it isn't, isn't it? I mean, it'll be new as a bill, but how long has this been on the cards? Well, I think I'm right in saying that uh, there was first an, you know, a, a commitment to do something about this for reform of leasehold in the 2019. Now, again, people say, well, they've done nothing about it and they have done nothing about it. But I mean, equally throughout 2020 and 2021, uh, and you could argue into 2022, the principal there were other issues things going on. <laughs> were, you know, a small matter called COVID, with which you are particularly familiar, uh, and and the rest of us are. Um, uh, so you know that 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 I I kind of I think that's a reasonable uh, reason. But yeah, I mean I think it's interesting, isn't it? So they're going to stop new houses being built and being provided in a leasehold form, um, but they're going to continue to let flats being built as leasehold, albeit for a 990 year uh, period. Um, so again, there's a there's a political difference there. Labour think that all new flats should be common hold, and I think 
there is a question mark there, isn't there? Do you know, should you legislate retrospectively and effectively try to make all existing leaseholds uh, transfer across to common hold or freehold or whatever? And I think that's hugely problematic. I and mean, that is hundreds and hundreds of thousands uh, of individual property rights, which, you know, which could lead to an enormous legal challenge. So I suspect the direction is right. I, I think the other couple of other things that was were, was was interesting. I was just looking at the, some of the detail. One of the things is that the bill expressly intends to make um, the purchase of a flat above a shop, uh, a freehold purchase of a flat above a shop, much easier. That, yes, it's changed the percentage, right, hasn't it? Yeah. If they get that right, that could actually unlock a lot of potential homes and some some towns. And I I argued when I was housing minister that we ought to be able to do better than we do because most high streets, if you look above the ground floor level, very often have a first floor which is empty, um, and which has you know heating and plumbing and all the rest of it, and would convert quite well into a small one two bedroom. Uh, flat and actually for young people starting out you know if every high street picked up a hundred of those um my golly that would make a difference uh you know and they're quite a good location because they'll be in the middle of the town so the bus Mm. bus services and so on will all be there if you haven't got a car and you're just starting out so i always kind of felt that empty space where shoeboxes or you know whatever where the shop staff have their sandwiches I've always felt we ought to be able to do better than that. So that, I think, could be one of the little quiet reforms that makes makes a big difference. Yeah, this is the bit that um, increases the the non-residential limit from 25 percent to 50 percent, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Yes. That, that, I mean, that could make right. a considerable difference. There, there'd still be problems with um, with insurances and, and all of those sort of issues, wouldn't there? I mean, yes, there would. Yes, there would. And I mean, that, yes. Well, I think it's also partly because um, the tradition was that if you had a building um, and I used to have the situation with because my father had a, an estate agency business. And when he died, it was transferred to my mother. So, I, you know, I was I was dealing with it. And um, the ground floor was the uh, valuers and auctioneers and state agency commercial premises and upstairs was sort of one office, but not more. But it had plumbing, it had power. Mm. And, uh, you know, I always felt if we could have because it was on an FRI lease for the building as a whole, um, it it really misses again. It pushed against you make doing anything about it. But if you. If a, a commercial tenant could say to the landlord, no, actually, I want to take the ground floor on an internal repairing basis uh, only, and what you do with upstairs is up to you, I think that would nudge a lot of landlords into saying, Act, right, we've got to make use of this space. How do we do it? Right, well, let's let's create a flat. Let's invest in in doing that. And I, you know, that I think so. That could be interesting. I mean, it's not the main heart of this bill. And um, but you're right. I mean, really, it's it's those little. I think though, when you're looking at um at something as a as a proposal or a white paper or a consultation of some sort, then those are the bits that often get lost in the grass, aren't they? And it's when you see that being presented as a bill and you see the the final few bullet points yes. of what they want to get across the line, you think, oh, okay, yeah, that could make a difference. I think yeah. the other things yeah. that that popped out for me on that were the um. Mm-hmm. Uh, removal uh, of the requirement for the for the leaseholder to have owned the property for two years. I thought that was quite oh, yes. interesting. Um, yes. That that sort of opens it up a bit more as well. Um, and the reduction of grounds at rents to zero. I mean, that's that's been quite controversial. There've been a few people saying, you know, this is yeah, this is really affecting the asset nature. We're looking at, at funds who 
hold quite a lot of these freeholds in their portfolios. They could be badly affected. I mean, that's obviously something that would be consulted about as the bill goes yes. through. Well, they, what, I mean, they did consult on this before the bill came forward, but I suspect they'll have to consult on hmm. the detail as well. So what, what potential does that have? Because I just want to go back to this point that we have very little time for these bills to get through yes. the House, through the Lords, receive royal assent. Um, as yeah. you say, rental yeah. reform, that one is probably going to get picked up by by whichever government comes in. Um, but this, it, it possibly will. But then again, it might get ditched in favour of um, a bigger focus on common hold, which is what the Labour front bench have been talking about. Could do. Yes. I don't know. I think very often if you're thinking about coming into office, you, I mean, what are they going to be focused on? They're going to really want to be focused on doing some of the, the, the bigger things. So they will already be thinking about some of the bills they might want to bring forward. Mm. So if they bill that's I don't maybe it's just me being pragmatic but if you've got a bill that's before the house from the current government and you can get 80 percent of what you want probably take it um and then decide what you want to do once you you know uh go from there so they don't have the numbers to achieve an outcome they could only effectively kill the bill my instinct would be that at this stage, I think they will probably they'll complain about the leasehold reform bill. Um, they'll try to amend it. They'll fail on some things, may may succeed on other minor things. The big question is whether the House of Lords, which is less driven by the two front benches, uh, decides to put a spoke and they run out of time. So this yeah. is why you know I, people say to me, you know, why does time matter? Time is crucial because a, a government you know, it's got 14 bills. There'll be other things that come along that completely, you know, skew the timetable. And they've Events probably got until the end of July uh, to get all this enacted, because the chances are that if you have an autumn election, he's probably going to call it on the first week of September. Yeah. So effectively, you're talking about the middle of July, maybe the third week if they go a bit long. And there'll be what will happen then is there'll be the, the wash up stage, which is what it's called. Um, and I've been through this uh, myself as in opposition. You end up there's a whole raft of bills that have got three quarters of the way or nine tenths of the way or whatever. And what you can do is to sit down with the opposition and say, yay, nay, yay, nay. You know, go literally going through them and saying, well, we'll do that if you cut it to one or we'll do this, whatever. Fine, done. You know, and it literally has to be done. It's very crude. It's very messy. It's the worst part of legislating because, you know, it is literally done over the table because quite quite often you've got it's the close of business tonight at six. Yeah. So yeah. You, know, you, you you nail it or it all falls apart. And very often the opposition will have something they'd like to see happen and you've got something you'd like to see happen. So. You know, stuff stuff happens, and I actually personally think that's how it should be. But um, it's messy, it, it, but it's there's no other neat way of doing it. So my instinct is that um, rental reform will go through, but the Labour Party will say they will want to do more. Um, leasehold reform will probably go through, unless I suspect there. Well, it depends if there's any tweaks, the hidden things that suddenly cause mm. a problem. Uh, that is it's being examined but I suspect that one has got a fairly good chance of getting through largely as it is. Would it be such a bad thing if it didn't? We've had um, I mean the BPF's uh, Ian Fletcher director of policy Ian Fletcher um, has called it a bill of missed opportunity and stored up problems so he's oh I think there are particularly damning of the detail. Yeah well I think there are there are there are big problems with it and Ian's right in that sense. 
I think the difficulty with this, and this is where, and, and there is a danger of them throwing the baby out of the bathwater. So if you think of most of the big old, the, the older states in central London, the Groveners and the Howard Waldens and so on, um, you know, they all, for the, the vast majority, run their states with leasehold properties perfectly well. Um, I'm sure there are, you know, complaints about individual property management problems, but on the whole, as a form, it, it works reasonably well. The problem came when the house builders started to abuse it and when some land uh, owners who had service charges started putting in doubling every, you know, three year uh, contracts and so on and basically got greedy. And yeah. the political willingness to accept, to tolerate that just, just melted away. And it came just after the house builders had been trying to, you know, stick free uh, leaseholds on detached homes on estates. <laughs> You yeah. know, and I, I remember thinking about it at the time, and what that did was it just ended the willingness of perhaps conservative benches particularly to tolerate things that the house building industry shouldn't be doing. Uh, there was just a loss of complete frustration and thinking, right, the, enough, you know, this needs changing and we're going to change it. I think the, the house building industry generally lost the confidence of Parliament as a whole at that point. And so now you've got a whole raft of changes, um, social housing sector, PRS, leasehold, you know, lots of stuff going through. And of course, then Grenfell happened with all the realisation around how that side of, of, of our housing markets don't work. So I think, you know, this, this, this substantial amount of reform, both in terms of uh, the legalities of the, the tenure and also the construction process, you know, these are these are going to ripple through the industries for a generation, I would say. There are a few things that aren't even touched on by the bill, are there? there there's no um, there's no mention of how you manage the the interactions with managing agents, how you look at that relationship, because that's an unregulated area, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. Now, um, what is happening is there's a push, of course, because of Grenfell. The, we've had the Building Safety Act um, to come through, and that is already you know, enacted. And that's that is, what that is requiring is the residential property managers do have qualifications, and there is a training requirement on them. And the, that sector, which has, as you say, historically been unregulated, is now facing huge change. Mm. Uh, I think it's a good thing. I think that you know one of the experiences of people renting. Um, in different tenures is that the service they get and their ability to get redress for problems has been terrible. Um, and so this is now changing. Um, so all the cladding crisis um, and all of that has been the other half of this, you know, substantial amount of property uh, law reform. So I, 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 I actually welcome, I, I, I said right at the start after Grenfell, one of the things that worried me was that we needed to have a much better control and a much more um, a better paid and better qualified group of people who are responsible for managing these properties on a day-to-day -day basis um, yeah. and that they needed qualifications and training and support and it shouldn't just be a cheap sector in which we get people get away with paying them the, the least they can and end up with huge turns over staff people don't actually know what they're doing um, and who are meant to be responsible for the safety um, of hundreds of residents and just just crazy so you know i you know um i actually think that a lot of these reforms make sense but you're right there are some bits in it where mm. 
how we get from A to, to F has not been explained. And um, it's a bit like there's net zero regulations, you know, in that sense. Well, let's let's go on to those in a minute because there's a there's a mention of those yeah. in the speech. But the, I think that the real sticking point by the looks of, uh, of what they're putting through and the consultation that they've already had on this leasehold and freehold bill is the institutional investment in freehold. It looks like that's the point where it could all come unstuck because this is billions of pounds worth of investment. And this is exactly the sort of investment that the government is currently talking about tapping up to put more money into infrastructure, to put more support behind the you know the growth agenda. But we're not talking about you know a, a few hundred quid. We're talking about billions of pounds worth of value, which the way that the bill is being proposed at the moment, that just goes, doesn't it? That you know you've got pension funds and, and local authority yes, funds. No, that's true. Yes, uh, well, and that's where I think simply abolishing a whole class of ownership is problematical. I mean, I think at the moment the leasehold reform is going to, is facing so that new homes, new houses. Uh, cannot be leasehold. So it doesn't say that existing houses that have, have got this tenure uh, should should be uh, mm. changed. And it doesn't, certainly doesn't say that the existing flats should be. Um, now, there is a strong movement to say that we should move everything to common hold. And I know what the potential advantages are. And I should say here that, you know, I, I, I own a lease and occupy a, a, a flat which which is on a long lease. So I'm kind of familiar with the, the, the issue from a practical point of view. Um, but I would say to you, uh, I have no problem if people wish to go common hold, but we should be realistic about uh, whether that will change the the, the preparedness of, of residents to how they engage with dealing with the common areas. You know, will that change of tenure may mean that more people will come forward to deal with the practicalities of maintaining the whole uh, block, you know, which is which and very often it falls to a very small number of shoulders. Um, mm willing to engage uh so there is i think there's a practical issue there um yeah i'm i'm perhaps i i, I was more concerned that there were certain types as i say like the some of the long standing landlords who are um uh you know good landlords uh that they are being those particular babies are being thrown out with the general dirty water in the bath he said trying to get that metaphor roughly right um but you know um there we go do you think that the amount of consultation that will have to happen because I mean, when you have people like um basically every legal mind that i spoke to about this and uh and, and the bpf as well when you've got people like that saying this hasn't been thought through they don't realize the the sheer scale of not wealth as in personal wealth but investment that they will just be completely drawing a line through. I think it's it's the the reduction of of um, of ground rents to zero. It's the peppercorning side of it. It's that okay. kind of the extension yep. from to, to nine hundred and ninety years. You know, all of that side just diminishes the value. But the, the question is, with with your ministerial hat on, yeah, if you're looking at a narrow time frame to get this over the line, and you say. OK, this bill that we've been talking about for ages and you've all been saying you want, here it is. We're going to do it. We're going to do it now. And the response isn't, oh, great, about time too. It's what? But you still haven't answered this question. You still haven't sorted this out. In fact, the answers you're giving appear to be worse. Is that the point where you think, oh, God, maybe it's just 13 bills and some associated <laughs> covenants? 
Well, and of course, there's always there's no guarantee that any of these bills will definitely go through, you know, uh, in that sense. So although I think on balance that the Commons won't um, probably oppose leasehold reform as it as it stands, that bill as it stands, as I said to you, I think the House of Lords may be where it, 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 get, it really does struggle. And then the question comes in a practical sense, we get down to what's known as ping pong, um, which is where the bill jumps from the Lords back to the Commons, they vote on the Lords amendments, it goes back to the Lords, uh, and so on. And that can, and very often it comes to a crunch point where you build ping pongs between the two houses for several hours. And then the, the, usually the House of Lords takes the view that it's there to correct, not to ch not to stop. Mm. Um, you know, which is fair enough. So Although I don't know, I, I think, there will, get I think you're right to say there will be quite a lot of institutional opposition to this. Yeah. And the question is whether in the mix, this is one that has the, the, the government wants to go to the wire on, or whether it says, well, we've tried, we haven't succeeded, um, and uh, oh dear, how sad, never mind. Good um, luck the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we saw a bit of that ping pong, didn't we? Uh, or more, I suppose, the threat of that ping pong with the um, the Leveling Up Bill. Um, yes. Leveling Up Act. Yes, has indeed. One, and there's, there were a few points where the, the Lords decided, actually, this is a, a mound we're going to die on. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, on the whole, that's that's good. I, I actually think that that um, amending role is a really good one. Um, but, you know, since um, the House of Lords challenged the government over its finances back in 1910, 1911, and then obviously the Lloyd George Amendment, which means they can only uh, they're only meant to amend things. But again, we you know, our constitution is one of conventions, not of strict rules. We don't have Amendment X like they have in the American constitution. Um, so there's always a little bit of fudge around the edge of it, um, which annoys government business ministers, um, sorry, business managers, not ministers, uh, enormously. But um, I, on the whole, I, I quite like, um, you know, uh, I, my, I say that as a minister who never actually had any of his legislation challenged in that way, so. Um, <laughs> Squat. Yes, <laughs> uh, and I had a butter up their lordships. But anyway, I sing with a lot of them in the Parliament Choir now, so it's quite funny. You're clearly not off key, otherwise they would have gone oh, for very you. Good. Very good, very good. And we were going to look at energy, I think, weren't we? we were yes, because that, that was another thing. In the in the supporting documents, um, <laughs> there was there was some talk about the EPCs, domestic EPCs, that just confirming that those stepping stones towards the eventual target um, yeah. would be scrapped or dropped or not held to be sacred. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I, I confess I missed that. So you've done brilliantly well in spotting that. I think I'll have a confession here. I'm, I'm a skeptic of the EPCs as they stand now anyway. I, I, you know, we're in the weird situation where I've certainly seen homes that had a boiler, gas boiler, ripped it out and put in, um, you know, the much taunted uh, idea of a, of a ground source uh, heating pump in it, with a view to trying to make their home more environmentally friendly. And the EPC rating uh, got worse um, for a variety of weird reasons. And I don't think they're fit for purpose. So but my my view would be what you do is you say, right, we're going to pause this for a year. But we still intend to come to that point. What we need to do in that year is to reform the EPCs so they are fit for mm. purpose. Um, but we're going to 
put it back one year so that the intention, because all of this requires long-term investment in people and kit and all the rest of it, and a commitment from the public that this is going to happen. So I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'll get there. I may get there this year. I may get there next year, but that's where I'm heading. And then that provides a sense of drive and purpose, as you say, provides those stepping stones uh, towards. But isn't isn't that the problem with with removing these these stepping stones to the end goal? Is that it looks as though it's no longer the goal. I mean, no matter how many times Rishi Sunak says no, 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 we still want to get there in the end. The rhetoric of it has the opposite effect, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't yes. make me want to go out and spend an awful lot of money fitting my house with the latest and greatest. Yes, but also, as as a as a, a commercial landlord, it wouldn't make me want to do the same on a commercial basis yeah. you know, because they're insinuating that they want to go further in um, in scrapping the the targets for for commercial property as well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Now, I was uh, I attended the EG's excellent ESG summit um, yes. this week in, on the very morning of the King's speech. And um, I was impressed with the fact, and I, I, I had that sense before, which is that actually politics is behind where the sector is now. Yeah. Investors for at least two years have been crystal clear that they are investing with a firm eye on their ESG index and where they are in that, whether it's whichever index it is. But nevertheless, they are taking a very clear view that they will only be looking at investing in, the, in, in, in those buildings that are truly sustainable and truly delivering net zero. So the investment markets have moved and that's what they're focused on. And the developer market has adjusted. It is true that what government now needs to do is to create the right regulatory framework to get us from A to Z. Uh, and that's the bit that's lagging. But I think the politicians here have got, got the element wrong I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of members of the public are going, well, hang on, A, explain to me what my options are, and B, explain to me how the hell I'm going to pay for this yeah. um, if I own my own home. So that that is where the legitimate concern is that government should be responding to and making sure that the targets are realistic and making sure that there's a reasonable way forward for most homes to get to where they need to be. Um, and that's that's been another the, problem recently because the delivery of those those programmes the small bits of money and the the match funding for for people to do to improve their homes and and also you know to improve other properties that's the rollout of that has been incredibly slow hasn't it i mean glacially a a glacial pace was labor's comment yeah well and i also feel with those things you know very often it's much better to do things like cut the vat on it so this grant bidding process you know i've always Mm. been a deep skeptic of it because it's a hideously bureaucratic way of doing it The trick is to find a way to make things in people's natural uh, benefits. So if you could say to me, fine, everybody on this this, uh, thing will be able to cut your uh, bills by 20% over the next five years if you sign up for X or Y. And and just finding the nudge point where actually it's in their interests. I think that's the better way of doing it, but not least because I do think there's a, a lot of people would like to do the right thing, they just need that little financial nudge. Doesn't have to be huge, and actually shouldn't be all of it because people like me that shouldn't be subsidised, uh, and a lot of us shouldn't be subsidised. But I think sending a signal that we're helping out those uh, who for whom it will be a struggle is a really good uh, thing to do. So I, I'm a I am a big skeptic of the sort of grant you know government handing out a chunk of money because it just takes forever. Mm. Um, 
because it is taxpayers' money. So therefore, you have to tightly manage it. And therefore, you have to judge every application to make sure they are who they say they are. And they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And that that is very bureaucratic. So it's much better to create um, incentives through other mechanisms. And tax is usually the best way of doing that. There was another thing in the King's speech, which uh, through a, a millisecond, I think no, it was probably longer than that. I was tired that day. I think there was, I think there was a good few seconds where I thought, "Oh, this is new," and it was, it was this. King Charles III said, "My government will deliver a long-term plan to regenerate towns and put local people in control of their future." Ooh. and I thought, "Oh, what's this?" Yes, so exactly. I eagerly went to the um, to look at the supporting documents and. It doesn't refer to any legislation at all. It's right. just part of the, as we said, you know, it's it was a long speech, but short on actual bills. Yeah. This is just a, a little bit of rhetoric inserted. More about a sort of general approach that the government is keen on. It looks as though yeah. it's probably referring to the long term towns plan, which are those little chunks of 20 million here or there. Um, I think it's 55 of them that are going to be allocated yeah. to towns. But other than that, there doesn't it doesn't appear to be referring to any sort of policy. So, I mean, that seems a bit off, Mark, doesn't it? I mean, are you allowed to put things like that in a King's speech? Gosh, politicians putting in things they might not uh, actually do. Um, I don't. I, I suppose what I'm thinking of is is sometimes um, a department will insist on a line going in. Um, because there are other tools, fiscal or otherwise, that they're planning to use they, that aren't about legislation, or there's a bit of legislation. So what I haven't what I haven't done is look at that against the Leveling Up Act to mm. see whether, because that's got lots of secondary legislation, yes, which lots. they haven't yet implemented. So it might be that I'm, I'm being generous here, you know, um, just putting the countervailing view. Um, but it could be it could be that's what they're trying to do. It could be a piece of flummery to pad it out a bit. Um, you know, it may be a bit of both uh, in that sense. So we'll see. I mean, because, it, for example, if they are looking to do new deals um, with local authorities to become unitary authorities and have mayors, um, then you, there's no legislation they need to have for that. They've got the powers to do it. It's just a question of sitting down and, and agreeing that negotiation. So um, yeah. that may be what it's maybe what it's referring to. So that that's my um, that's my counter to 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 your terribly cynical view that politicians might <laughs> promise something they never do. Goodness, well, who could possibly imagine that? In which world? <laughs> sadly, didn't happen in my day. No, I won't say that. <laughs> Nice try, Minister. Nice yeah, try. Yeah, quite. <laughs> uh, was, was there anything else that popped up in the speech that you were a particular fan of? I mean, are you devastated about um, getting rid of zombie knives or uh, or the fact that 14-year-olds will never be able to smoke? Um, <laughs> yes, quite. Um, well, I, I think that quite a few parents would, would, would can probably think of other things they'd like their 14-year-olds never to do. But no, I mean, I, as I say, I, I kind of thought it was inevitably going to be a bit of this and a bit of that. Uh, in themes, there were some bills that were kind of ready to go, of which you can argue rental reform is one, albeit in general. I think it's very difficult at this stage with a short parliamentary term, unless you've got one absolutely fundamental legal change that you are busting to do. Because if you have, then you know that what happens 
is that the opposition, being the opposition, will block that as long as they can. So you, because, so therefore, you have to be quite careful in picking the things you want to, as you say, uh, die on a hill for. So I didn't think it was going to be the most exciting King's speech since whenever, since Gavin. Um, but uh, and and I was and I was proven right, I suppose. But that is sadly all we've got time for for this episode. Although we're going to be back again this month, um, a rare double for us because it's the autumn statement, and we wouldn't want to miss that. Um, so we'll be back with uh, with a discussion about what's gone in, what hasn't gone in, what uh, Jeremy Hunt has managed to get away with, how much fiscal headroom he's got. Is there anything yes. that you're particularly looking forward to there, Mark? Well, uh, I th- I'm aware of one announcement uh, which is coming, which I'm, I, I literally can't say anything about, but which will be there, which I think will be interesting. So we'll be able to unpack that. So, you know, just to build up the tension for the for the listeners, there's an interesting announcement I'm already aware of, which uh, I, will, I will be able to reveal all uh, immediately after Jeremy Hunt has sat down. Very good. Well, I I don't think any of the rest of us will be able to sit down until then with the excitement of what this could possibly be. So exactly. And it will be somebody called Jeremy and not Gavin, which, you know, um, (laughs) tickles me if I do that one. But that's it for this episode. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. (laughs) Goodbye.